Chapter 16, The Last Judgment The Apostles' Creed, after declaring the divine session, reads concerning Christ that, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The Nicene Creed affirms, And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. The verdict on history will come from beyond history, even as the determination of history is from eternity, from the triune God. For, in Stauffer's words, nothing can happen without God willing it, willing it to happen so, and willing it beforehand. As Stauffer, who is by no means orthodox, has written, That is not fatalism. The fatalist sees everything that happens in the world and its history subjected to the oppressive coercion of an impersonal fate, while the biblical writers know of the guiding will of a personal God who hears and answers our prayers. That is not determinism. The determinist conceives of human decision as being affected by subpersonal causal factors that are alien to the will. This reduces the will to an appearance, as among the Essenes, according to Joss Ant 13.172. By contrast, the scriptures conceived of our will as conditioned by a will of a suprapersonal kind, by the will of God, who wills man's will, and by his willing first quickens man to his specific reality. Moreover, as Stauffer has noted, Christ once came to the earth as the Rex Triumphus, the Deus Salvator Revelatus. History is a succession of judgments, wherein God comes in clouds of judgment, and all these cries and judgments are for the shaking of the nations, to destroy the reprobate realms of man, and to establish by shifting Christ faithful in his realm, and to establish by sifting Christ faithful in his realm. As God declared through Ezekiel, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more, until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Ezekiel 31.27 The purpose of this overturning, according to St. Paul, is the removing of the things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12.27 The successive judgments have as their purpose the removal by destruction of things that are made, i.e., of the humanistic and apostate orders of history, so that Christ's kingdom, which cannot be shaken, may remain. These are all partial judgments, forerunners of the final judgment. Humanism, however, has not left this doctrine of judgment untouched. The parable of Matthew 25:31 following has been used by the humanist to convert the last judgment into a triumph of humanism. Jochum Jeremias provides a notable example of this. For Jeremias, the parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats gives the criterion by which the heathen will be judged. The parable is actually concerning the judgment of the professing church. Jeremiah instead sees it as a judgment, not of the shepherd's own flock, but of another flock. But Jeremiah then contradicts himself when he states that separate is a shepherd's technical term for dividing the goats from the sheep in Palestine at the end of the day. In other words, it is the shepherd's flock, Christ's church, which is being judged. But Jeremiah still sees it as a judgment of the heathen. Perhaps in view of such a saying as that in Matthew 10.32 following, where Jesus says that he will intercede at the last judgment for those of his disciples who have confessed him before men, he might have been asked, but then, by what criterion will the heathen who have never known you be judged? Are they lost? For such was the contemporary opinion. Jesus replies, in effect, the heathen have met me in my brethren, for the needy are my brethren. He who has shown love to them has shown love to me, the Savior of the poor. 
So at the last judgment, the heathen will be asked about the acts of love that they have shown to me in the form of the afflicted, and they will be granted the grace of a share in the kingdom if they have fulfilled the Messiah's law, James 2.8, the commandment of love. Thus for them, justification is available on the ground of love, since for them, too, the ransom has been paid, Mark 10.45. First of all, the idea that unbelievers had any right to salvation never occurred to anyone in the New Testament era, and it is never a concern of either Christ or the apostles. Second, Jeremiah makes a totally humanistic concern the ground of salvation. Not Christ, but man is the test. Faith is manward, not Godward. Third, justification is given a non-Christian ground, humanistic love, rather than God's grace. Thus, not only is man the object of faith and religious concern, he is also the source of grace and salvation. Fourth, as has been noted, Jeremiah chooses to disregard the fact that the shepherd is judging and dividing his own flock, the church, not the heathen outside. It is the separation of the unbelievers in the church from the church, and the ground of it is the shepherd himself. Fifth, this parable is part of a discourse on the judgment of the church, of true Christians as against nominal ones. Matthew 24, 42-51 concludes the declaration concerning the fall of Jerusalem, and then the end times, both instances of judgment, by warning the church to be prepared for judgment by means of true faith and obedience. Three parables then illustrate the distinction between true believers and nominal church members. First, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Second, the parable of the talents, i.e. profitable versus unprofitable servants. Third, the separation of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25. In this last parable, Matthew 25, 31 and following, a profession of faith by both sheep and goats is presupposed. Both are followers of the shepherd both alike profess to be of his flock. The question is one of division in terms of the reality of their professed faith. True faith is saving faith. Even a cup of cold water in his name then has its reward. Mark 9:41. The witness to faith required by the shepherd is confessional, confessional in that it manifests faith and confesses it under stress. This confession has a double aspect. First, the fruits manifest the tree, and works confess the faith. Second, the church has been warned that persecution would be its portion. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Luke 6, 22 through 23, 1 Peter 4, 13, 14, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 2 Timothy 2, 12, etc. But that the Lord would be with them in their trials. Matthew 10, 19, 20. To visit imprisoned Christians often took courage because it meant identification as a believer, and in the persecutions of the early church, such attention from official sources was serious. St. Paul spoke with feeling of Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed of my chains, 2 Timothy 1.16, and this word comes from a period before the general persecution of Christians. St. Paul spoke of discerning the Lord's body in two ways. First, in knowing the meaning of the communion elements, understanding and believing in his atonement and his resurrection. And second, in avoiding the divisions whereby Christian brethren were not recognized nor shared with at the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11:17 through 34 They were thus not recognized as fellow members in Jesus Christ, and the Lord's body was not discerned.
In this parable of judgment, the goats have failed to discern the Lord's body because they were not truly members of him. They refuse to know him in the persons of his oppressed and suffering saints, because they are the cursed who know him not. Not knowing Christ, how could they have communion with his members, refusing to recognize Christ in his glorious person? How could they recognize him in his suffering and oppressed saints? Matthew 25, 41-46 the audacity of these sinners is notable. They dare to contradict Christ on Judgment Day. The saints, in humility, fail to recognize the full scope of their faith. The sinners deny the meaning of their sin. The interpretation of Jeremiah is not only an alien and humanistic one forced into the scripture, but Jeremiah's own comments give it the lie. It should be added that such interpreters do not believe in the reality of the biblical judgment. For them, the creeds and scriptures are simply myths and symbols. Thus, George Headley defends the creeds as venerable tradition, which deal with not events but values, and these values constitute the essence of the creeds. Childish literalism is condemned for believing the creeds literally, and adolescent literalism for denying the creeds for... It is only in myth and symbol that man can come close to expressing the inexpressible. It is in the poetry of the ancient creeds that the everlasting faith of the church yet rings out to the world. But it would be a serious mistake to say that these humanists do not believe in the judgment, nor in a heaven and hell. They do believe, and very literally, but not in the biblical judgment, heaven and hell, because they are established by God as inescapable aspects of man's history, judgment, heaven, and hell are inescapable categories of thought. If a man denies the biblical version, it is only to create a humanistic version. In a very important passage, Karl Marx said in part, for a popular revolution and the emancipation of a particular class of civil society to coincide, for one class to represent the whole of society, another class must concentrate in itself all the evils of a society. A particular class must embody and represent a general obstacle and limitation. A particular social sphere must be regarded as the notorious crime of the whole society, so that emancipation from this sphere appears as a general emancipation. For one class to be the liberating class par excellence, it is necessary that another class should be openly the oppressing class. For Marx, it was necessary, first, for one class to identify itself as the liberating class, as man's savior. Second, to do this, it is necessary to identify another class as the oppressing class, as the devil. Third, Marx felt it necessary, as his many writings reveal, that revolution culminating in judgment be demanded against this demonic oppressing class. The world revolution would culminate in the last judgment. Fourth, there would be a hell for the oppressors, and the Soviet Union has its slave labor camps and a heaven, the communist utopia or paradise on earth, for the faithful. The details differ, but every worldview and every faith has its version of judgment, heaven, and hell. For some, hell is existence, and heaven is nirvana and nothingness. But the basic categories remain. The relativist, nihilist, and existentialist who deny all absolute values and laws demand judgment on God, law, and morality. Hell for them is a world of absolute values, which they wage war against, and heaven is a world beyond good and evil. But to transfer final judgment, heaven, and hell from the eternal order to time is to absolutize history and to enthrone man as God. 
It means the destruction of liberty because history ceases to be the realm of liberty and testing becomes the place of final trial. Having made the final judgment temporal, the humanist cannot permit liberty because liberty is hostile to finality. Liberty presupposes trial and error and the possibility of serious waywardness when and where man is sinful and imperfect. History cannot tolerate both trial and error and insist on finality and the end of trial and error. The humanistic utopias are all prisons because they insist on a finality which man does not possess. Accordingly, the socialist utopias demand the re-education of man in the post-revolutionary world in the era beyond judgment. The new era is the new heaven on earth. How can perverse man dwell therein without being broken by revolutionary justice, i.e. a continuation or extension of the last judgment? The result is perpetual tyranny, as immoral man and dissenting godly man are forced into the straitjacket of the socialist heaven. Development is thus denied to both man and history. Epistemological self-consciousness brings the parallel development of the wheat and the tares, of saints and sinners, and God does not permit finality to invade history until the end of history, Matthew 13.30. The humanist, however, believes so passionately in a final judgment that he insists on bringing it into history before history can develop its implications. Dewey demanded the great community, the Fabians their great society, and every other version and sect of humanist has its apocalypse and last judgment. The humanists failed to introduce heaven, but they successfully established hell on earth. But history refuses to terminate on man's orders because it runs on God's time and not in terms of man's myths. As a result, the final orders which men build have an inevitable habit of decay. And the order which claims to be final ensures its own destruction as the movement of history crushes it underfoot in its unrelenting march to epistemological self-consciousness. Man's final orders come in with pride and go out in shame and destruction. But Jesus Christ shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end.